My niece, Karen Kaiser, died in an auto accident when she was just 14 years old, and it was due to the careless driving of uh, another girl that was in the car uh, with her. And of all of my brother's children, I think she was the most spiritually sensitive. Uh, she may have even had a premonition of her death because um, shortly before that, she wrote in her diary how much she was looking forward Sorry. <laughs> to seeing the Lord soon. And uh, she was deeply burdened for the salvation of her friends. In fact, the evening of her death, she had invited some of her friends to church. And I wouldn't have used this one if I'd known this. <laughs> they came under such deep conviction of sin that they left the service early. And she asked uh, her mother, uh, my sister-in-law Marilyn, if uh, she could go with them and talk with them. And she gave permission. My brother was in Scotland at the time. And on the way uh, there, they had a head-on collision with another car. Uh, one of the girls was instantly killed, and uh, by the time my sister-in-law got there, a farmer had pulled uh, the young girls out of the car and put them on the side of the road. And so my sister-in-law was able to cradle her, <laughs> cradle her daughter's head on her lap. <coughs> just singing hymns to her, singing her into the kingdom. And uh, there were a lot of people who looked at that and thought, what a waste. You know, here's a girl who has Christ on her heart, who has ministry in her bones, uh, who had so much potential, and God cut her short, you know, before she could even do any of the things that her life was prepared to be involved in. And why would God allow that? And there may have been similar thoughts that people had when Stephen died as a young man, uh, an incredible young man, but he died uh, what seemed to people prematurely. In chapter 8, verse 2, it says, And devout men carried Stephen to his burial and made great lamentation over him. And you can appreciate their grief because this was an incredible loss to the church, but it was not a mistake in God's purposes. Uh, God had caused this homecoming to be timed perfectly and strategically to advance the cause of this kingdom. Uh, for example, in chapter 8, as a result of this persecution of Stephen and the conflict that happens here, persecution really heats up and everybody has to flee from Jerusalem and the gospel is taken out into pagan lands which may not have happened otherwise. As a result of uh, Stephen's words here and his death, uh, Paul's conscience was so troubled that God used that as a part of the process of leading him to uh, a saving knowledge of Christ in chapter 9. Uh, as a result of what happened with Stephen here, there was a great exodus of Jews uh, out of Judaism uh, in, in Jerusalem. And not only that, most importantly, it ushered Stephen into the glorious presence of the Lord and it testifies to this day to us of the power of God's grace in death. <clears throat> My niece's death may have seemed ill-timed, but her two friends that she was so burdened for their salvation were the only ones who walked away unscathed and they came to Christ as a result of that, which was her heart's desire. 
uh, as a result of some of the circumstances surrounding this death, which I won't get into, there were three TV stations that covered the funeral probably the first time in decades up in Canada that the gospel had been heard on those uh, TV stations. 1,200 people attended the funeral, and 600 people gave their lives to Christ. You see, God's ways are not always our ways. And so what I want to do is I want to think about death this morning, and I want us to think of death not just as a loss, but as just one more manifestation of the glory of God's grace. And if I could have any wish granted that I desired, it would be that my life could be lived as significantly as Stephen's was, however short it may be, and that I could die as glorious a death as Stephen died. Uh, to me, that would be an awesome thing. Every time I read the story of Stephen, my heart yearns for the significance of both his life and of his death. To die in the arms of Jesus is every bit as glorious as to live in the arms of Jesus. And it's not a morbid thing to think about death. You young children need to be thinking about death even now and be preparing for that. I think Charles Spurgeon was correct when he said, to be prepared to die is to be prepared to live. It was precisely because Stephen was prepared to die at any moment that he was given such a powerful life during the short time that he had here on, life, uh, on earth. Those left behind in chapter 8, verse 2 were mourning, but Stephen was certainly not mourning. He was carried just from one glory into another glory. And so let's look at the faithful death of Stephen. I'm not going to follow the outline. That outline just did not preach. Uh, but it does give you some information of the contrast that you can see between the Sanhedrin and, and Stephen's life. I'm actually just going to go phrase by phrase through this um, passage and try to pull out any meat that we can pull out. And I'm, uh, on the discussion questions on the back, I'm going to be following in the order that it goes through on there. Let's begin with verse 54. When they heard these things, they were cut to the heart. Stephen's speech had brought incredible conviction to him, uh, to these people. The Greek word to cut to the heart means literally to be sawn in two. It's talking about pain that was brought through the word. It's a pretty painful thing if you were sawn in half, wouldn't it be? And bringing the word of God is sometimes a painful thing in people's lives. And it results in two, one of two things, scenarios. When Peter brought pain to the Jews in Acts 2, it says, Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? Peter calls them to repentance. They repent. They put their faith in Christ. They receive forgiveness and peace in their Savior. But in this passage, we get the exact opposite result from the preaching of the Word. It says, When they heard these things, they were cut to the heart, and they gnashed at Him with their teeth. And there's five lessons I want to draw out from this verse here. The first is that when God's Word is properly applied to sin, it will always produce pain. Galatians 5.17 says that the flesh and the Holy Spirit fight one against the other, and because the Word of God is the Word of the Spirit, the flesh fights against the Word of God as well. And that conflict brings pain within. We speak of that as being conviction, but sometimes it is painful. Sometimes it feels almost as painful as being sawn in half. It produces uh, that pain within us. And so don't be surprised when uh, you sometimes feel pain at the preaching of God's Word. And don't be surprised when you're in devotions hoping to get some comfort from the Lord when you get pain instead. 
Yes, comfort is one of the purposes for God's Word, but God has ordained that the Scriptures will bring pain into people. The second lesson is that we all tend to be pain-aversive, don't we? And so anytime God's Word brings pain into your life, you need to analyze your reactions. How am I reacting to this? One way of getting past the pain is to acknowledge your sin. Say, yes, I am a dirty, rotten scoundrel here. Admit it to others. That's a painful thing for, for pride. But to admit it, to confess it, to seek reconciliation, and almost immediately you have relief from this pain. But that's not the first impulse of the human heart. Well, of a mature Christian's heart, it should be the first impulse. But many times, immature Christians do the exact opposite. They bank on the way that they used to avoid this pain, and that is by either denying it or going on the attack. And I want you to realize that your heart is just as capable as the irrational aversion to pain that these men's hearts were in this chapter. I have seen Christians convicted of sin and yelling, I don't care. Just get off my case. I don't want to hear about it. You know, that is not a godly response to pain. And because God is faithful to us, God guarantees it will not be a successful aversion to pain. Why? Because he's going to keep hounding you and keep hounding you until you repent of that sin. And so it's not going to be a successful way of averting uh, that pain. The only lasting way to avoid the pain is through repentance, restitution, forgiveness, and reconciliation. And so you need to guard your hearts. Anytime you find this pain being brought into your life by the Word of God, say, okay, I know I'm pain-aversive, and we're made to be pain-aversive, so which is the best way to avert this pain? It's obviously God's way, but our heart doesn't think that way. We have to be uh, thinking proactively. The third lesson is that there will always be the risk of backlash when you bring God's Word into other people's lives. Some people have thought, Phil, I just do not feel comfortable. In fact, one person said I was crazy to be taking the Word of God into closed countries uh, because of the risk of backlash. But let me tell you something. The flesh of an American is every bit as opposed to God's Word as the flesh of a Chinese person or some other closed country uh, citizen uh, would be. In fact, when you, there's a risk of bringing God's Word even to those that you love, those who are Christians. Many times the flesh will flare up even within your family. There's always a risk in doing things God's way. But certainly do not be surprised when you bring God's Word to bear in pagan people's lives and they don't react you know, nicely. <laughs> they don't react the way that you thought that they should. <clears throat> Only the Holy Spirit can enable them to do so. And the fourth lesson is this means that we need to pray that God's Spirit would accompany the Word. My preaching from this pulpit is useless if the Spirit does not quicken that Word to the hearts of people. We've got to constantly be in prayer and constantly be in dependence upon the Holy Spirit. When you bring God's Word to bear in your children's lives, you need to be praying, Lord Jesus, please help this Word to bring a reaction of repentance, if repentance is needed, rather than a reaction of denial or attack. Uh, please, Lord, when uh, the, the preaching of the Word comes, enable me to receive this by Your Spirit because I know my heart. I know my heart is so capable of doing the exact opposite. The fifth lesson is that it is doubtful you are going to be faithful like Stephen was at the time of your death if you are not already dying to self day by day. If you do not day by day die to self, you're still going to be just as self-absorbed at the time of your death 
as you are right now. And so we need to right now be dying to our own desires, our own rights, our own will, and our own ways. Verse 55, But He, being full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven. And I want you to notice that but. I think it's indicating it's something that you would not expect. You know, when people are furious at you, they're gnashing their teeth at you, however that goes, um, <laughs> the tendency probably is to get very, very unnerved, to lose your focus and to fear the backlash that's going to be heaped upon you. Like Peter, who lost faith when he started looking at the waves, we have a tendency to begin to lose our faith, our boldness, our confidence, lose all heart when we look at the opposition around us. And that's natural. It's very easy to give in. Very, very easy. What is strange, uh, what shows the remarkable presence of God's Spirit in Stephen's life is that his gaze is not on his tormentors. That's where my gaze would tend to be. Like, whoa, you know, watch these guys. His gaze was on the Lord Jesus Christ. He doesn't even seem to notice what is going on around him. God helped Stephen to see that the things around him were transient and the things of eternity are permanent. The more transient earth appears to you, the less it's going to have a grip upon you. And the more real heaven appears to you, the more you're going to do things on the earth in a way that will count for eternity. The problem is that I think we have a tendency to have 99.9% of the time gazing at the things below rather than gazing at the Lord Jesus Christ. I think that's the tendency of our heart. And so I'm not talking about escapism here. I'm talking about having an eternal perspective on absolutely everything that we do. And again, only the Holy Spirit can enable us to have this. Look at the text again. But he, being full of the Holy Spirit, there is the reason, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Now, God does not always give us a literal vision of heaven and of Christ like He gave to uh, Stephen. And He doesn't really have to in order for us to be able to have the same result. If our life is governed by His authority... And day by day, we have learned what it means to have that union and communion and that fellowship with the Lord Jesus Christ. We can have exactly the same results in our lives. And let me give you an illustration using Hugh Latimer's testimony. Hugh Latimer was a Protestant reformer in the time of Henry VIII. He ended up being martyred under Mary because of his preaching. And uh, boy, he was in danger of being martyred a number of times under King Henry VIII because King Henry did not like his preaching at all. And so, one Sunday, he was preaching to the court. There's King Henry sitting there and all the courtiers around. And uh, he was bringing conviction into the life of King Henry. And King Henry was peeved. He was very upset. And he told him, I want you to preach next Sunday, but before you preach, I want you to apologize for the offense that you gave to me today. So here's what uh, Hugh Latimer did the next Sunday. After reading his text, he began his sermon this way. Hugh Latimer... Dost thou know before whom thou art this day to speak? To the high and mighty monarch, the king's most excellent majesty, who can take away thy life if thou offendest. Therefore take heed that thou speakest not a word that may displease. But then, consider well, Hugh, dost thou not know from whence thou comest, upon whose message thou art sent, even by the great and mighty God who is all present and who beholdeth all thy ways and who is able to cast thy soul into hell? 
Therefore take care that thou deliverest thy message faithfully. And then he then preached exactly the same sermon he preached the week before. But boy, he did it with a lot more fervor and a lot more energy. Now you can see what he was doing there. He was trying to give himself perspective and to give King Henry perspective. He was saying, yes, King Henry is an awesome, fearful monarch, but God much more so. Yes, I see King Henry standing in front of me and all of the courtiers around. And boy, their looks are pretty fearful. But he was experiencing the presence of Jesus in a far more powerful way and his whole life revolved around the Lord Jesus Christ. And it helped him to see life in a different way. And in a similar way, we need to have a focus upon Christ like Stephen did. may not be with uh, visions. It probably won't be. But if our mind's eye is set on Christ, we can walk despite the waves. We can preach despite the anger. We can die well. We can live well. We need the hymn, Be Thou My Vision, to be a reality in our lives. Verse 56, And said, Look, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Heaven had become so real to him that it is almost as if he's oblivious to the fact they don't see what he is seeing. He's so excited about what he is seeing, he wants them to share in the excitement of seeing the glory of God and the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's almost as if he is detached from earth, but he's not really totally detached from earth because he's addressing them. He knows that they're there. He's uh, addressing them. He's saying, look. And so he's aware of what is going on around him, but he is much more aware of the realm of the eternal. He's interpreting history in light of eternity. And it is not escapism because he is interacting with what's going on on earth, but those things are not the things that grip him. Those things are not the things that drive him. And let me tell you something. If we could be as clear-sighted as Stephen was, we would always make the right decisions. We tend, though, to see things in terms of earthly uh, realities instead of the heavenly. And as a result, we have grossly misplaced priorities. John 3, verse 31 says, He who is of the earth is earthly and speaks of the earth. Uh, what he is saying there is apart from the Holy Spirit, none of us can transcend that earthly perspective. We don't see in terms of eternity. It takes the Holy Spirit to give us an eternal perspective. Now, sometimes the Holy Spirit ushers people into His presence, into the, uh, the, the sense of His love, of His power, of His joy in such remarkable ways that uh, it gives people incredible joy as they are dying. And I've heard testimonies of this. I've read testimonies. And I've been a couple of times in rooms where people are dying where exactly this has happened. Such a sense of peace and of God's presence was there. It made you so you did not want to leave the room. You just wanted to bask in the presence of the Lord. There are other times where God does this in our devotions where we almost lose touch with earth because we are so caught up into the beauty of God's presence. And other times, it simply manifests itself in wisdom. We make the right choices. But when you look at the contrast of the utter blindness of these Pharisees to the presence of Christ and of His seeing the presence of Christ, it makes you realize only the Spirit can accomplish this. And we need to be longing for this ministry of the Spirit in our lives that we would have a constant recognition of His presence and of His power among us. <clears throat> now, you may wonder, why is Jesus standing here? 
Eight times Jesus is said to sit at the right hand of the Father. There's only two times that He is said to stand at the right hand of the Father. And the other time in Daniel chapter 7, both places, He is called the Son of Man. And in Daniel 7, He uh, ascends on the clouds. Uh, All authority and dominion is given to Him in heaven and on earth. He's given the kingdoms of this world and any nation that rebels against His authority comes under His judgment. And so, that seems to be the illusion here. (coughs) And so that means probably that He is standing here as a judge, judging these judges of the earth. Kiss the sun, lest you be angry, you know. Judging the judges of the earth. And by the way, Daniel also mentions the destruction of the temple, which is one of the things that these people were so uh, exercised about. Men may judge Stephen, but Christ, His judgment is the one that really counts in the long term. If only we could value the approval of Christ more than we value the approval of men. If we could see like Stephen saw, it would make a huge difference, I think, in the decisions that we make. Now, verse 57 shows the blindness of depravity that they still rebel and still close their ears in the face of such overwhelming evidence. It says, then they cried out with a loud voice. And I think that was in part uh, so that they could overwhelm Stephen's voice. They didn't want to hear any more. They cried out with a loud voice, stopped their ears and ran at him with one accord. And talk about irrational rage and suppression of the truth. It would be comical if it wasn't so serious. It was probably demonic that was driving them to do this. Here's dignified men shouting at the top of their voices, fingers in their ears. I'm not listening. You know, they're trying to keep the truth out, right? Why is it that people do not listen to the truth? Well, there's three reasons uh, that I can think of why people don't listen. Won't listen. Sometimes people don't listen because they're filtering out what they hear based on what they want to hear or based on what they expect should be heard. And uh, so they, they tune out anything that does not line up with that. You've probably on occasion accused your husbands of uh, you know, having selective hearing. And maybe sometimes that that is true because we do tend to filter out <coughs> things based on, you know, through an interpretive grid. I, I should have thrown in there one that was not uh, any manifestation of depravity. It's just a manifestation of old age that sometimes we become so one-track minded we don't hear what's going on, okay? But I'm just dealing with manifestations of depravity here. The story is told um, that Franklin Roosevelt was just getting sick and tired of all of the reception lines that he had to stand there shaking everybody's hand for hours on end. But what irritated them most was not just the long lines, but the fact that nobody seemed to pay any attention to what he said. So he thought he'd do an experiment. And uh, he just, all the way down the line, he'd mutter under his breath, I murdered my grandmother this morning. (laughs) And he mumbled it to everyone that he shook hands with. And he wrote, now maybe he was exaggerating, who knows? I'm just taking his word for it. But he wrote that guests responded with things like this. Marvelous. Keep up the good work. We're proud of you. God bless you, sir. (laughs) Now he said he didn't get any negative reactions or anything that acknowledged what he said until the ambassador from Bolivia came up. He shook his hand, said the same thing. The ambassador leaned forward and whispered, I'm sure she had it coming. (laughs) 
But I think there is a tendency for us to tune out and filter out what we're really not interested in, right? And I would call this a mild form, mild manifestation of our depravity. Another form of not hearing is more perverse. These people know exactly what you are saying. They may even know that it is the truth, but they just ignore it. Okay, it's a passive resistance. They may even smile at you and nod and everything, but they go away and they just ignore what you've had to say. They go ahead and disobey anyway. Um, and so passive resistance is the second manifestation of depravity. And you know, when Jesus said, he who has ears to hear, let him hear, he's implying some people do not have spiritual ears. They do not have spiritual sensitivity. The third form of not hearing is people who angrily go on the attack. And I have seen this even with Christians. Now, sometimes you don't see the, uh, the anger. Uh, sometimes people are just so clever at being able to take the pressure off of themselves and turn it back on the accuser. I know one man who to this day just makes me marvel at how skilled he is. Somebody will confront him about a serious sin in his life and you just watch. And this person so smoothly turns it around and with probing questions about problems in this person's life or alleged problems, turns the attention away from himself and you never get back onto the subject you started with. And their accusations had nothing to do with uh, the subject material that came up. Just a, an amazing, amazing thing. But it's going on the attack. At other times, it's angrily saying that you don't care, telling them to be quiet, I don't want to hear about it. Or sometimes people will actually get verbally or physically abusive. And many times they don't care that they don't make any sense. Sometimes it sounds so irrational and it doesn't seem to bother them. They just do not want to hear the truth. It's this kind of a blind rage that has led uh, sometimes the persecutors of people in, um, in these closed um, countries to beat Christians so severely, to just go out of control, that they end up killing uh, the Christians. But uh, I think this is such a great picture of total depravity, yelling with closed ears. Okay? It's the natural state of man. Verse 58, and they cast him out of the city and stoned him, and the witnesses laid down their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. Now, I want you to notice that even though they did not show self-control and their hatred toward him, they still had enough self-control that they didn't kill him on the spot. They followed meticulously all of the rules because you weren't allowed to kill him even inside of Jerusalem. Took him all the way outside of Jerusalem. They had their witnesses that they needed. They had the witnesses. They took off their clothes. They took the time to take off the outer shirt so they could throw stones easily. They followed all of the rules that needed to be. And it's amazing how legalistic um, sinners can be. Uh, they even um, uh, took a vote on it. And the reason we know that is in chapter 8, verse 1, it says, Now Saul was consenting to his death. He was obviously on the Sanhedrin, or he would not have been able to give his consent. And this is a key verse for interpreting some later passages in Acts. Uh, his training under Gamaliel uh, had to have been finished already. And so though he was still somewhat young, which in Hebrew thought would have been in the 40s, and I think he had to be at least 40 because according to the Pharisaic traditions, you could not be a rabbi, you couldn't be ordained until you were 40. Um, so uh, Saul probably had, um, according to Pharisaic tradition, you couldn't be on the Sanhedrin unless you were married either. And a Pharisee of the Pharisees married at 16. So he probably already had grown kids. His wife had died. 
And uh, he was already a pretty respected person in that community, though he was uh, quite young. And so this is the first mention of Saul. And later on in the book, we're going to see that this scene must have made a huge impression upon him because in chapter 9, his conversion chapter, it says his conscience had been bothering him. It says it is hard for you to kick against the goads. Goads are those sharp instruments they use out in Africa to poke the cattle to get them going. We have electric paws now. But um, it's an indication he was experiencing pain. Those things brought pain into his life. And there have been numerous persecutors of Christians who have come to a saving knowledge of the Lord when they have seen the godly way that Christians have handled themselves under interrogation and under torture. Uh, they have had those goads of God's Word poking their consciences and have eventually succumbed to Christ because of the faithful Word uh, of the Christians. So we can praise God. He is, uh, even in those seemingly out-of-control situations, advancing the cause of His kingdom. Now back to this issue of self-control. Isn't it interesting that lack of self-control is often so selective? Um, you can have parents who are yelling and screaming at each other or yelling and screaming at the kids, but miraculously they turn on a sweet voice when the doorbell rings or when the phone rings and they talk to this person as if there's nothing in the world that is wrong, right? Or they can be out of control in the family, but boy, they would never dare to talk that way with their boss even though their boss is ornerier than their husband or their wife is, you know? And... Uh, they can control themselves there because their job is at stake. Now, the reason I bring this up is because it's... I, I don't know how many times I've heard the lame excuse of a person who's maybe abusive, so angry in his family. I can't help it. Yes, you too can help it. You've helped it in other situations. It's that you don't want to help it with your family. See, depravity, total depravity, does not mean you have a physical incapacity to do the right thing. It's a moral incapacity. You don't want to do the right thing. But again, we can praise God that when we are regenerate, God changes those things. And He has begun to work in you both the will and to do of His good pleasure. He gives you the want to. And so that's an encouragement for us. Now, this verse also brings up another question that's often asked, and it is this. How could these guys get away with stoning Stephen? Uh, you can read in many books that the Romans had taken away the right of capital punishment from uh, Israel and they just were not allowed to do it. Uh, uh, it was illegal to exercise capital punishment. In fact, at the trial of Christ, they acknowledged that themselves. They say, it is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. John 18, verse 31. Now, this is why they bring Jesus to Pilate. Only a Roman governor could exercise the capital penalty. And so this has been a puzzle for people. How could they, in this public way, execute Stephen and get away with it? Well, I recently found out that there is one exception that the Romans allowed. Uh, the Romans allowed an exception on capital pen pe penalty if anyone defiled the temple. In fact, written right into the temple wall, the wall that separated the court of the Gentiles from the other courts within, had these words. No foreigner may enter within the barricade which surrounds the sanctuary and enclosure. Anyone who is caught doing so will have himself to blame for his ensuing death. And so now perhaps you can see why in chapter 6, verses 13 through 14, they, they keep harping on the temple. They're trying to get him to admit to something on the temple that they can charge him with. 
and, and it also helps to explain why they were so stymied at Christ's uh, trial. Remember, they brought false witnesses against him concerning um, the, the temple, and he doesn't answer a thing on that. There's a reason for it, according to John. And the false witnesses won't agree with each other. They're contradicting each other. And so they're frustrated. They cannot bring anything against him that they can use to stone him. And the Gospel of John says it was because uh, God intended him to die by crucifixion rather than by stoning. It was prophesied that he, he would be that way. And so they have to bring a totally different charge than he was tried for. They, he, they tried him for claiming to be the Son of God and the Messiah. They don't bring that up when they bring him to Pilate. What do they bring up? Matthew says they bring all kinds of charges. They're hoping one will stick. But in Luke 23, verse 2, it says, We found this man inciting our people to revolt, opposing payment of the tribute to Caesar. I mean, both of those are just flat-out lies. And claiming to be Christ, a king. Now, that's true. But later they make big hay of it and they turn it in a way that was not intended. So they knew that they could not stone Jesus unless he defiled the temple, so they're forced by God's providence to use Rome. So Stephen, this means, is stoned for one thing and one thing only. It was because he said that Jesus was going to destroy the temple and the people along with it. Now, it's hardly blasphemy, but they felt it was enough for them to be able to charge him with something that would hold up with Rome if they, if they were to get into, into trouble. Verse 59 <clears throat> And they stoned Stephen as he was calling on God and saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Now, four things to notice here. First, it's okay to pray to Jesus. Right? Stephen prays to Jesus here. Paul prays to Jesus in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Now, ordinarily, I think our prayers should be to the Father, in the name of the Son, in the power of the Holy Spirit, but we shouldn't get legalistic on that. We can have union and communion and prayer with all three persons of the Trinity. I've on occasion had people say, you know, it's unbiblical for you guys to be singing songs to Jesus because that's praying to Jesus or singing songs to the Holy Spirit. Well, let me tell you something. Do an exercise for me if you have this, uh, this conscience scruple on it. Read through the Psalms and check out which people are being addressed in the psalm. Sometimes the people are being addressed, sometimes the Father is addressed, sometimes the Spirit, and sometimes the Son. And so it is perfectly biblical for you to be praying to Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so where Jesus addressed the Father when He's giving up His Spirit, He says, Father, into Your hands I commit My Spirit. Here Stephen sees Jesus ready to receive His Spirit, and so He, he says, into Your hands I commit My Spirit. And second, this implies that Stephen understood that Jesus was divine. The doctrine of divinity of Jesus was not invented in the third century, as some cults claim. You can see it all throughout the New Testament. In fact, before we saw, you can see the divinity of Jesus in the Old Testament. Third, this shows that we are more than just a body. There's a movement in Christianity called evangelical monism that uh, says that man is such a unified whole that there is no such thing as existing independently of body and spirit. Now, the most radical form of it is a proponent by the name of Mackay, or McCabe, I don't know how you pronounce it, but Mackay says uh, that, that we are pure material and that when we die, we cease to exist. Now, we exist in God's mind, he says, 
And so God at the resurrection can pull together any molecules that He wants and replicate what's in His mind. But we cease to exist between now and then. And so body and soul are just different ways of speaking of the same material uh, substance. Uh, and he calls himself an evangelical. Now, other proponents are less, less serious of a problem, but they say that our spirits are so tightly connected to our body that you can think of ourselves as one and the spirit can never exist. It could not survive apart from a body. And so the moment we die, we're given an intermediate body until the time of our resurrection. This just puts the lie to that. It is not true because it's spirit as spirit that goes to heaven. It's into your hands I commit my spirit, okay? Spirit as spirit that goes to heaven and our spirits will be conscious with rationality, joy, all the expressions of humanity even though there's no body connected. Fourth, this is precisely the definition of death. Separation of body and spirit. Death does not mean cessation of being. It means separation of being. And so, when God told Adam and Eve, the day that you eat of it, you will die, some people say, see, God's false. He said in the day you'd eat of it, you'd die, and they're still alive. No, they did die on that day because death is separation from God. They were instantly separated from God when they sinned. The, uh, when our body, well, from that time on, their bodies were also dying. And when their bodies died, there was a separation of spirit and body. And there's one other, and in, that's in hell. In hell, there's going to be body and soul, a separation from God and from all social relationships. And so, if you would define uh, death correctly, you won't, see, you won't see any problems. So, you can see this little section here has just got a ton of theological and practical content in it. Verse 60, Then he knelt down and cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not charge them with this sin. Notice that Stephen had no bitterness toward his enemies. None. He is so filled with the Spirit that God communicates the love of Christ through him to these people. The same kind of love that Christ displayed on the cross when he said that asked the Father to forgive those who had persecute, persecuted him. Now, let's just think about that for a moment because I think this is important. For God to be able to answer this prayer those people would have to be saved. In order for God to be a just judge, because a just judge has to condemn purely in terms of justice. In order for God to be a just judge and not lay this charge against them and every charge that they've ever committed in their lives against them, um, Christ would have had to bear that charge in their place. And so what Stephen is praying for is he's praying for their conversion. Now, that is a remarkable thing. Here he is, bones being broken, internal organs being damaged, pain as these rocks are being hurled at him, longing for these people's salvation. Just a remarkable thing. This is the same burden that God gave to Paul in Romans chapter 9. And let me tell you, only the Holy Spirit can give you that kind of a burden. But where the Spirit of the Lord is, you're going to have that kind of a burden at least to some degree. Uh, I think this is one of the evidences of filling with the Spirit. It's a burden for the lost. And when I think of Paul, to me, it, it just shows the incredible change that sanctification by God's Spirit produces uh, within us. If you take a look at chapter 8, verse 1, it says, Now Saul was consenting to his death, 
And so the Spirit changed him from having this murderous rage to a compassion in Romans 9 where he says, I wish I could even go to hell if they could be saved. Now, God's not going to allow for that to happen, but that was how deeply he felt a burden for the lost. That's the incredible power of sanctification by God's Spirit. Now, back to uh, verse 60 again. It says he knelt down. He wanted to die in a position of prayer. And I can't think of a better position to be in to die. Uh, if there are two choices I would have to, uh, to die, to croak, would be while I'm preaching, but that would probably freak you guys out too much. <laughs> so I thought, okay, well, second best would be while I am praying. But let me tell you, if you are used to communicating with God and offering up all of the issues of your life in prayer day by day, moment by moment, it is not going to be a burden for you to be offering up your life to Him in prayer. It's going to come very naturally for you. I know some Christians who really struggle at the time of their death, and I've known other Christians who just radiate the joy of the Lord as they are ushered into God's presence. They're so used to communing with God in life, it's not a difficult thing for them to commune with Him in death. Now, the last phrase of verse 60 shows how Christ has conquered the great enemy death for the believer. It's no longer something to be feared. It's like falling asleep. He says, and when he had said this, he fell asleep. Now, I love that description of death. But let me correct a, a misconception some people have had. This does not mean that Stephen has been unconscious for the last 2,000 years, only to be reawakened, you know, at the time of the resurrection. That's the false teaching of the Seventh-day Adventist church, and there's some other churches that hold to it, uh, that is called soul sleep. It's not his soul that is asleep. And just think of what happens when you are asleep you are not totally unconscious when you are asleep. You're dreaming, right? You're thinking in your sleep. You are unconscious to the world, but you are now conscious to a dream world. You fall asleep to one world, you awake to another. And I think this is such a beautiful analogy. When we die, we do fall asleep to our loved ones on earth. We can no longer communicate to them. They cannot communicate to us. Our eyes are closed to them, but we awake in the arms of Jesus. We are conscious in the new world of heaven. And I think it's just a beautiful, beautiful imagery of peace. One East Indian writer said, Death is not extinguishing the light. It is only putting out the lamp because the dawn has come. Stephen did not need to fear the darkness <laughs> because he was entering into the light of heaven. He was trading one glory for another glory. How do we die a faithful death? Well, I would suggest it would be dying like Stephen died. If you learn to be full of the Holy Spirit now, you will be able to be ushered into God's perspective of death when you die. Uh, if you learn to conquer bitterness now, you can die a sweet death in no matter what circumstances you may be in. If you learn to be in, the midst, in peace in the midst of turmoil now, God will enable you to walk through the valley of the shadow of death and know that the God of peace is with you. If you've learned to have gracious boldness now without compromising your testimony in the least, you're going to be able to die without compromise uh, at the end. And if you walk in life like Stephen did, you're not going to care how short your life is. All you're doing is you're walking from one glory into another glory. You're walking in the light of heaven right now. And the deep desire that I have, and I pray it's the deep desire that each one of you have as well, is to know Christ and the power of His resurrection. 
Jim Elliott was a missionary who was martyred by the Alka Indians in uh, his 20s. He, he died quite a uh, young man, a remarkable man. But on July 7, 1948, he wrote this in his journal. July 7, 1948, Psalm 104, verse 4. He makes his ministers a flame of fire. Am I ignitable? God, deliver me from the dread asbestos of other things. Saturate me with the oil of the Spirit that I may be a flame. But flame is transient, often short-lived. Canst thou bear this, my soul? A short life? I can bear a short life if the power of Christ is within me. And it's my prayer that Jesus would become so real to you that you would be willing to be ignitable like Stephen was. You'd be willing to lay down your life for Him, that your life would count no matter how short or how long it may be. Make it so, Lord. Amen. Father God, we thank You for Your Word and its call to us to step into the supernatural, to walk in the power of Your Spirit, to live a life, Father, that is devoid of this earthly thinking. Father, spare us of the dread asbestos of things which grip our lives so often. Help us to realize that everything we do down here below can only have significance, can only have meaning as it is lived in terms of eternity. Please, Father, I pray that You would anoint us with Your Spirit from on high and enable us to walk as Stephen did and to die as Stephen did. And may you receive all the praise and the honor and the glory. In Christ's name, amen.